from KQED. It's part of the California political world's most important game of chess, the floating of ballot initiative ideas to see where the money and the fight will be. Three big chess moves this week. That's our KQED California Politics podcast for the week ending May 8th. And initiative intrigue, topic number one this week. We're also going to look at that nasty state Senate race in the East Bay and a little quick preview of next week's new state budget. I'm John Myers from KQED, along with Anthony York of the Grizzly Bear Project and Marisa Lagos from KQED on a somewhat rainy day here in Northern California on Thursday. I think we'll take it. We'll take it briefly, barely. Even we, if it's a tiny bit. We are all L.A. now. It's like Every time it drizzles, it's full-on weather watch. <laughs> I know. You, the, the morning news agrees with uh, you. Yeah. I used to work for someone in radio who would say the storm door is open, and like you know, we would have to like all, but that's another podcast. Yes. Uh, so this is politics, not weather. And uh, topic one in politics for us this week, uh, less than 16 months from the November 2016 election. Who knew? Check your watches. Um, but... Less than that, really, if you think about big interest groups deciding what battles are in store when it comes to ballot initiatives. And this week, uh, three fights, it looks like, emerged. And we talked a little bit about the 2016 ballot before, but these are kind of three new ones. Either they're actual initiatives or one of them is a, is a new effort, which I guess is what a way of saying we might do this. It's... Well, it's, part, it, it's, it's part of the uh, sticking of arrows into the quiver, I guess. Good. So those arrows are either real or perceived arrows in the quiver. Uh, a tobacco tax measure, which was introduced this week, which would incre- increase the tobacco tax uh, by two bucks a pack uh, in California. A measure from the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association that would expand the uh, tax exemption for homeowners. We'll talk about the details of these in a moment. And the third one, which is not an initiative yet, but boy, it certainly has been talked about long enough, uh, to change Prop 13 and to make commercial property uh, assessed differently and probably more often than residential property, the split role, as it's called. So um, overview here first. I mean, these are, right? These are chess moves. These are people trying to figure out where the money, where the momentum, you do this, I do this kind of thing. Yeah, it's part of the the overall tax discussion we've been talking about on this podcast about 2016, the beneficial electorate. And, and, you know, the backdrop for all of this is that Prop 30 begins rolling off next year. The sales tax piece does. The income tax piece, which is the larger piece, rolls off in 2018. And this is really a, a... a battle over California's future, where the revenues are going to come from. As we get into the individual proposals, it's interesting to note who's backing them, who's behind them, how they're constructed. I'm thinking about the tobacco tax in particular. Go for we it. Can, talk about it. Uh, well, you know, this one, uh, it's being sponsored by by the healthcare providers. And if you look at where the money goes for this new tobacco tax effort, it goes to raise money for the Medi-Cal reimbursement rates, which goes back to healthcare providers, doctors, and, and there's been... Well, it goes there, back to the stalemate on the state budget over that issue. Well, right. This is a bleed over of an issue that has been in the courts and in the legislature for the last several years. California has the lowest Medi-Cal reimbursement rates in the country at a time when Medi-Cal is booming because of the Affordable Care Act, which is which has greatly expanded uh, our Medi-Cal roles in the state. We have more than 11 million people on Medi-Cal, but it's harder and harder to find a doctor or a dentist that will actually treat you and because... Um, because a lot of doctors and, and, and other providers are opting out of the Medi-Cal uh, networks because, because the compensation is so low. And so it's, it, it, you know, it's part of a, a, major, a major problem and debate that's been going on. The governor has held the line on reimbursement rates. There have been bipartisan efforts to try to boost them, and, and the governor has held firm. So question, does that mean that, that insurers as well as doctors would like this bill? 
Or this measure in terms of that that portion of it? Uh, I don't I don't know. I, I know that a lot of the momentum is coming from the hospitals and the doctors yeah. on this, and I'm, and the uh, and the and SEIU as well, the healthcare workers. Well, and it's especially interesting to me just because it we had a uh, tobacco tax initiative that failed a few years ago, where right, the where the money that. was earmarked for this research stuff, and the whole campaign, right? The whole campaign became where is the money going? Is it really a good use? And that was yep. the no campaign strategy. So now redefining where the money goes to something that may have wider support exactly. is probably smart politics. Well, and the reason I asked that question, obviously, is who would back this, right? I mean, tobacco's got a lot of money. There was a lot, you know, between, I think, the tobacco companies and then, you know, sort of anti-tax folks. There right. was a pretty great campaign against that last one, as John mentioned, you know, including doctors and ads right. speaking against it. Um or maybe doctors. Were they doctors? Yeah. <laughs> they were wearing lab coats. They were yeah, they were wearing coats. Lab coats. If you've got a lab coat in a <laughs> television ad, you're, you're a doctor. A doctor. Right. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I play so, one on TV. So I think I think the proponents of this are trying to fix, you know, two issues that they came up against last time. One, where does the money go, which makes it more susceptible to political attacks. Two, where does the money come from to push this initiative if it is you know, something that a bigger group of moneyed interests can get behind, they probably have a better chance. I also think that just in general, it's fascinating to see this debate because we saw this with the soda tax debate in the Bay Area where Berkeley said, we're not going to hinder this money by saying it goes to a certain place. San Francisco looked at the polling and said, if we do that, they'll just attack it as a general fund, you know, do you really trust politicians? And so I think that this is a playbook we're seeing a lot happen on a wide range of these issues where politicians feel like they are not trusted and, and, yeah, and they're yeah, not. Yeah. No, they're not. But 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 the, I think there are dangers either way when you ear, when you start earmarking. I mean, John, you you said quickly you thought it might get some support. I mean, I think the notion of of increased reimbursement rates has bipartisan support in Sacramento. If you think about how this might play out politically, it's like, you know, this is money that would otherwise be going to schools, but is now being siphoned away from schools to go to hospitals and doctors. There's right? also I mean, right? the There's... inherent problem with sin taxes, which is the point of them is to get people to stop u- doing something and then the money dries well, up. Well, it is diminishing revenue. Well, and, and, and to that point, because I was going to actually get on that, so, I'm, so we're great minds think alike. I mean, it's it certainly, if you're talking about Medi-Cal reimbursement rates, it clearly is a stopgap measure then, right? I mean, because let's, you know, so what we've known through that budget debate, and we'll talk about the state budget later in the podcast is that that could be somewhere of a billion dollars a year. So this is not going to solve that problem completely, nor will it solve it for very long. It is a stopgap of some kind of thing. But again, I just go back to the 2012 measure, which barely failed. I mean, remember Mm -hmm. we were into the, you know, recount, pay for recount of signatures, very, very, very tight. And it had a funding structure that maybe was somewhat, you know, in fairness, I think the funding structure was not quite transparent into where that money would have gone. Uh, But also to your point, Anthony, about, yeah, you could say it's not money that goes to other programs, but who knows what the electorate's going to look like. If the electorate um, has a younger constituency because of the presidential race or a a Latino constituency, and again, people who are coming into the ranks of Medi-Cal through the Affordable Care Act expansion who who can be told, you can't get a doctor but this will help you be able to see a doctor. Yeah, I mean, and, I don't know. And, well, that's a big lift politically, and that's a new, that's a new tag, and that's that's kind of a, a two-step education process, which is, I think, at least 
twice as expensive. I mean, and you're talking about we've seen what the tobacco companies are willing to spend. Uh, so it's going to take a lot of. I think it's going to take a lot of money to try to get this thing passed. Just one quick note. I I, I was just thinking that it, this is a fascinating time because I feel like the the tobacco debate, save for some sort of one off measures, had largely fallen out of the public view for the last ten years. Right. I mean, we've seen smoking rates go down so dramatically. And then with the rise of e-cigarettes, you have all these new regulatory, you know, proposals. You have tobacco starting to flex their muscle around that. Now we have this. Um, Raising the smoking age. Yeah. I d- bill to yeah. 21. I yep. just think it's an interesting time to see how this, you know, the to prove there's nothing new under the sun, really. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that the same issues come back in different ways. Um you know, if this was another industry, you might think, oh, between all of these efforts, they might be overtaxed, so to speak, from a monetary perspective. But I don't think tobacco has that problem. So the other measure, just to kind of keep us going in the, mm-hmm. the chess game of this, the other measure that uh, got uh, got submitted for title and summary, um, and I think it's fascinating because it is the other end of the political spectrum. Again, people not only trying to figure out um, – what the 2016 electorate will look like. But keep in mind what we've talked about, about the initiative rules are different. Uh, The threshold of signatures that you need is as low as it has been in a generation. So it's cheaper to get something on the ballot. So, I mean, I think it could open the door to all kinds of things. So this measure from the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association mirrors a proposal they have in the legislature, which ain't going to go anywhere, probably because it's being carried by a Republican and it has different dynamics. But maybe this is what they want. It would um, it would vastly increase the um, the tax break you get for owning a home. Uh, it has been for a very, very, very long time, $7,000 homeowner's tax exemption. It would go to $32,000. Um, it would also have some mechanics in it. Um, I, I, the language is not quite clear to me and my simian brain, but uh, it has some language in it that would benefit renters, so they would get a, a, a break in some sense by these property taxes being lowered. Um, and it would be indexed to inflation, which is a big thing we've talked about with minimum wage. This would be able to go up in years uh, hence if inflation went up. Uh, it could be sold as uh, a boon for the middle class. It could be sold as a tax cut. Uh, and again, it it's a very and, and it would actually it would, of course, cost money out of government coffers because a tax break means fewer tax revenues, either on the local level or the state level or a combination of both. I think it's an interesting move from the Jarvis folks. I think so, too. I mean, it, it really plays to a lot of different sort of interests. And, you know, voters like tax breaks. Right. I mean, people sure want to pay less, do, yeah. Yeah, yeah. less on their tax bills. Um so I think, yeah, I think it's an interesting move, and it just shows how politically there's, like, this circle, and at a certain point, like, both sides meet on the other side, you know? <laughs> because we last week we were talking about this minimum wage proposal, and I think you're right. I think both of these could be framed, especially if, if the renter stuff bears out, which I'm not entirely clear on either. But even if, you know, even if it doesn't totally make sense that renters would get this break, they could campaign on that. And I think that that would open up a whole new sort of political arena if you know on an electorate but will they have money to campaign if they are trying to defeat split role right uh will they will they so that's let's let's throw the let's throw that other one in the soup real quick and then we can look at both of those so um on thursday a new coalition and 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 i almost don't want to call them a new coalition because if you look at the coalition members there are some very familiar names in there who have been talking about this um 
announced a new effort, and I don't, I mean, I'm being vague because, quite frankly, I think it's a little vague, but I think that's them intentionally so, testing the waters. Uh, a new coalition, though, to demand a change in Prop 13, and this is the one we've talked about for a long time. Uh, political junkies know this well. The 1978 landmark initiative uh, lowers property taxes, caps the growth in property taxes, regardless of what kind of property, who owns the property. Um, most people, you know, really focus on the residential property impact and, you know, me owning a house or Marisa or Anthony owning a house. Um, in this particular, you know, it also, though, limits taxes for commercial property, property taxes. So the split role would split those two in half and would say, let's let commercial property tax rates increase at a different rate than property than residential properties. And it is... Um, it is the thing that keeps being talked about, and it invokes the, you know, the on the the big fight of Prop 13. And I, you know, I don't know whether the groups are serious. It's um, organized labor, uh, SEIU, California Teachers Association. It's some more kind of local groups who are very much progressive, liberal side yeah. of the spectrum. I was going to say, I mean liberal progressive types have been salivating over this issue for like the past five years. I think we saw them. And longer, but yes. Well, longer, but I think it really came, you know, to a head during the financial meltdown and economic crisis, whatever, you know, five years or six years ago. Um, and it's interesting to me that it's taken this long for them to actually get it together to try to get something on the ballot. But I do think that you know, this is an area where they have a potential for some ends if voters are really listening, right? Nobody wants to talk about rolling back Prop 13 for residential properties because it's so easy to say that that could hurt retired people, old people, you know, the whole thing that Prop 13 was passed on in the first place. Um, I do think when you get down to the real policy of this, there's, you know, valid questions and debate to be had over whether commercial properties should, you know, be held to the same standards. Um and, and there are good arguments on both sides, but it's definitely something that the Howard Jarvis folks, you know, it's like they think anything to do with Prop 13 is a third rail. And I think the left is just spoiling for this fight. And that's historically been an easier narrative, right? I mean, you invoke Prop 13 and that's all you have to do. Yeah. Although, you know, the electorate that passed Prop 13, I mean, Prop 13 still does have political power. We saw that in some legislative races, you know. Sharon Quirk Silva lost, um, you know, uh, Steve Fox. In both of those races, Democratic incumbents were defeated in sort of swing districts or maybe even, you know, Republican-leaning districts with strong uh, Prop 13 messaging. And so um, I think that the that the issue still does have some, politi- some political resonance. But, you know, the, the electorate that passed Prop 13 is very different than the electorate today. And so... Um, but, you know, to Marisa's point, it's it would take a massive education campaign. It would take a, it would take unanimity and and uh, coordination of effort among all these disparate groups. Um, and I think ultimately it would take the leadership of someone like uh, Jerry Brown, for example, or someone a high profile. If it's not going to be in 16, maybe, you know, Antonio Villaraigosa has has uh, championed this idea of mm-hmm. split role. Um, 
but I think it needs some real political leadership too to help educate the public. I, I'm I, I confess to being a little skeptical about the chances of it um, for a lot of reasons. Right. But right. one of the reasons I do is if you look at the coalition that. Um, announced its existence um, <laughs> on Thursday. I still don't know what to do when you say you announce <laughs> right. you're a coalition. But if you look at them, they dovetail pretty close in my mind with the people who have been talking about Prop 30, who have been talking about an extension yes. or made mm-hmm. permanent. And you can't do both campaigns no, in you 2016. Can, you, you, can't you have do to both. pick one. You can't do both. And look, and if you look at the groups, I mean, specifically, you're looking at the teachers unions, the California Teachers Association and the California Federation of Teachers. But also the, the service employees, SEIU. I mean, those are those are the big ones that jump out in terms of political players on the coalition. But you know, and and the, there there will be discussion of a Prop Thirty extension. There's also this discussion that that's being pushed by Senator Bob Hertzberg about sort of another overhaul of the tax code to expand it to uh, you know uh, extending the sales tax to services basically. And there's a kind of a bank shot involved where you raise the earned income tax credit. So anyway, but, you know, I think those ideas are still being formulated. But you look at a Prop 30 extension, right? And the thing about income tax and property tax too, but especially income tax, which is most of what Prop 30 is, if that money, if Prop 30 is extended, the main beneficiaries of that are schools, the teachers' union schools, whether that's because of the maintenance factor issue, you know, because of the spikes and We've we've discussed that before, and we have a budget podcast next week. We'll right, so we'll, we'll get into the maintenance factor then. But uh, <laughs> but um, but but schools. Whether you're talking about the wall of debt, which is overwhelmingly education money, or or the Prop ninety eight guarantee, schools get that money. Now, if you're looking at other sources of revenue, like sales tax, for example, well, guess what? That frees up money for a lot of other interests, whether it's universities or locals or you know or or health and welfare programs, and so. Well, yes, there is a coalition, and yes, there will probably only be one tax idea that goes forward. There are going to be some real divisions within the labor family on this. But to that point also, uh, split role. Split role would change commercial property tax assessments, which benefits tax revenues on the local end, which therefore reduces the burden of the state to backfill some of that money, which is general fund money then. It's not necessarily rising the school guarantee, unless I'm totally wrong on the mechanics of this beautiful piece of policy. So all of that... We have wonks that will set you straight. (laughs) So all of that has to come into play. I think that's what your point is. It has to come into play. If you're the political groups maneuvering here, you can't tell me that you don't think about what the impact to your particular pet projects are when you decide which one of these to go after. Absolutely, which, you do. Absolutely. Which makes me think that all of these, to some extent, everyone's sort of just bobbing out ideas to get a sense of, of where yeah. everything's at. Chess and, game, I think, in yeah. some way. And also, you know, I, I was thinking about what you said about the electorate being different. And, and I do wonder, you know, since these do dovetail both the Howard Jarvis um, uh, proposal to you know, for the bigger tax credit and also this idea of Prop 13. I just wonder how much, you know, the fact of property being so insane in a lot of places in this city, the fact that I don't think generationally as many people are owning property, like how that could impact all of this. And, I, you know, I don't have an answer. I haven't, but I'd be interested to see polling on these You're speaking things. as a person who's been looking to buy real estate and... And who lives in a city where right. renters are overwhelming, you know, or overwhelmingly... Which is why, which compared is why, to a lot of places, which is why having a renters component of that yeah. Howard Jarvis measure is smart politics too. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, again, I, I, I couch this as a as a as the bit of the chess game, 
and I know, I mean, I know I can remember at least the time Anthony, you and I have said this in a podcast in the Wayback Machine years before. We were looking at this particular period before um, an election season where where this part is very important because it's it not only susses out the ideas, but the funding and who's ready for which strategy. And if you zig here, I zag there. I mean, this is, right. you know, we, we can say that this is like, oh, you know what people talk, but this is real. I mean, this is really what groups do. They have to figure out where they're going to put their money, how they're going to put their money, what polls better, what tests better. If we do this one, who's going to do that one? This is all very well thought out. And and politically, it's very difficult. I mean, look at what happened over Prop 30, right, where you had the divisions. You had Molly Munger, who ended up going her own way. But then you had this sort of a lot of this progressive coalition that is involved in this prop in this uh split role effort, uh, they were pushing for a more uh, a more progressive millionaire's tax, a purer millionaire's tax. Uh, and then you but you had the governor and the governor ended up being the arbiter. And at the end, people understood that the political clout of the governor was an essential political component mm-hmm. to getting this thing passed. And I'm not sure that's going to be there this time around. I mean, he's already on record. I don't think it is. Right. And so and so it makes you wonder if anything is going to be able if if these folks will will be able to get their act together to coalesce around a single measure without the governor's support. But what about I mean you mentioned Viorgosa. What about Newsom? What about all of these people who are looking not, you know, even Kamala Harris. I I, I wouldn't expect her to jump no, into most no, of these right. fights, but I think especially people who are looking to run for governor could see this as a real great example to raise their profile, Absolutely. endear themselves to the, you know, their bases of support um and and you know be and show themselves as a leader in that way. So I do think there's an opportunity and you know J- Jerry Brown this is his last term. Like you could argue that someone like that could potentially be more powerful. Absolutely. But but will somebody step into that vacuum and have the cl- I mean look, anybody who's out of office is not going to have the political clout of the of the sitting governor. That's just a fact. But And Newsom but- has hitched to start a pot. Well, well, I was going to get to that. So finish up, Anthony. But yeah, I mean, that's the thing. How many things can you do? Well, I'll just jump in here. But right. Right. I mean, so Newsom has already identified marijuana for good or for bad, you know, in this legalization thing as his star moment. And and that's what I and I was going to link to this. There was a tweet uh, earlier this week that I retweeted with a little observation line from Tom Steyer who said, you know, is again talking about big oil. It's time to put an end to the big oil giveaway. He tweeted, start giving Californians a fair shake. Does that sound like a guy who might still be thinking about the oil tax, the oil severance tax? It Mm -hmm. sure does. does. And so, again, how much bandwidth or political visibility can someone have on more than one issue? And where does the money fall? And how many tax or big issues can you have at once? I mean, that's part of it. And and with so many divergent uh, political agendas out there, I mean, you mentioned Gavin Newsom, Antonio Villaraigosa, Tom Steyer – what does that do to the odds of being able to coalesce and, and come together politically to support a single measure? I think it probably makes it a, a smidge more difficult. So we've got um, we've talked about. So looking at the 2016 ballot really quickly before we move on, we've got potentials here that we've talked about. We've talked about minimum wage, which we talked about on the podcast last week, which is out there. Uh, we've got multiple marijuana legalization measures. Are we up to four or five? Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And we don't know where that coalesces. Uh, we've got a school bond on the street gathering signatures. Uh, we have another measure that I know is on the street that is um, somewhat confusing to me. It's a it's a government regulatory um, 
well, I'm going to botch it, but the political consultant working on it can call me and tell me, apparently I didn't listen to him when he told me about it the other day. <laughs> but there are, I mean, so we're just starting to get the glimpse. I think that's kind of what we're looking at here. And I, and I think that whether or not these uh, three topics um, happen or don't happen, and I would, I would argue the, the, the Jarvis measure has got the strong, a pretty strong place because, again, you don't have to put a lot of money into something to get it on the ballot. Your point, Anthony, is right. Whether you can spend the money to run the campaign is another thing. The tobacco tax people, I bet, are probably pretty good. And this split role advocacy money. thing, I mean, they're testing the water, right? I mean, so. Yep, absolutely. And then and somewhere lurking back there is not only SB8, but the Prop 30 extension, which yeah. clearly is being discussed behind closed doors and, and will emerge at some point between now and, and January 2016. And again, they all have to be on the November ballot, not on the June ballot, thanks to the change that the governor signed into law a few years ago. So they all are on a collision course with the same electorate, the same um, uh, space that they have to compete for the hearts and minds of voters. So we'll, we'll see. So uh, speaking of competing for the hearts and minds of voters, not all Californians, but the voters in the 7th State Senate District, which is Alameda, Contra Costa counties, and it's nasty. It's an ugly special uh, election down there. Less than two weeks uh, before uh, voters go to the polls. They've already started casting ballots, which I'll talk about. And two Democrats, Susan Bonilla, incumbent uh, assembly member from Concord, and Steve Glazer, the mayor of Orenda and longtime former, I guess, political consigliere to Governor Jerry Brown. And and I've said to people um, many times, let's see what the two of you think. I mean, it really does feel like this is a bit of a referendum on what it means to be a Democrat. You know, and 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 what does loyalty to the Democratic Party mean? What is the Democratic ideal? Glazer sees it one way. Bonilla and her supporters see it another. And it it is um, at this point from this week when I did the the tally, we have eclipsed the seven million dollar mark. The vast majority of that money is independent expenditures. The mailers are supposedly so high. Like I have seen some samples of the mail. I've talked to uh, Glazer down in his office, and then uh, Ms. Bonilla said it on our show forum this morning, like there's stacks up against the wall. Like somebody said there was a stack of them at the recycling plant locally that they were going to take a photo of. I mean, it's inundated and it's nasty. And they're really accusations bitter back and forth. Well, I would say there's kind of an asterisk. I, I agree with you that it's being framed as like, what does it mean to be a Democrat? But, and we discussed this a little earlier, it's like in that particular district, right? Fair enough. Fair because enough. this is a fairly moderate district. Republicans have a fair amount of registration numbers. And so, you know, Glazers run to the right and Bonilla's tried to run to the left. I mean, the irony is in, you know, another district, Bonilla would not be the liberal candidate necessarily. Um, although, you know, I think this has largely come down to this issue of like unions versus business in a lot of ways, not actually... A lot of issues, like kind of outside. I mean, we're not talking about social issues in this right, race. But I don't even think she was presented as the liberal candidate at first. Because remember, there was a right. primary where Joan Buchanan, the um, former assemblywoman, really had that more liberal base. She had the CTA's endorsement. Absolutely. And now, of course, in round two, all of those those groups are coalescing back around Bonilla, including the state party, while Glazer has to go get Republican votes. And right. that's how he came out as the top vote getter in round one was Republican votes and some independent votes. And he's got to find some way to move forward. Yeah. I just think it shows how relative all politics is, you know, it's, it's so it's this slice of 
this one district, and it and and it is. It's nasty. And now, do we have a tally know. given you know uh, of what CTA has spent in this area over the last twelve months? I mean, they came in against Glazer for Tim Sabranti in the assembly race. Oh, you're uh, rolling back to the previous race, yeah, the assembly in, in the cycle, same area where they, Glazer where, lost, right? Glazer lost to Tim Sabranti, who's a member of the of the PAC on the California Teachers Association. Sabranti, when he lost in round one. In round I mean, ultimately one. Ultimately, then it was Sabranti and Baker. But right, and then when it was Sabranti and Baker, CTA came in big for Sabranti right. again and lost. And then they came in for Buchanan and lost, and now they're in for Bonilla. So they, they don't have a very good track record, but I'm sure their spending is, I mean, at least high six figures, I, I, you know. I also think it's just fascinating because at the end of the day, whether it was Baker or if Glazer wins this race, I mean, one member is not going to shift the narrative on unions and work rules. And, you know, Glazer really drew the ire of unions over a number of things, but mostly his, you know, proposal to ban BART strikes. Um, I thought yeah. it was working for Mark Levine and, th- and against Betsy Butler. I think, I, th- I think, well, right. But yeah. that's what I was going to get to. Right. Like, but that's what they keep talking about. Right. Yeah. And I think it goes back to this issue of like, it's not just about one member. It's about this idea of like, Staying in line with your allies and 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 the power base in Sacramento. Yeah, well, but I think that's I think that is interesting because to your point, Marisa, about the Bart issue, which I think, um, and, and I'm not, you know, I don't want Steve to tweet me out and say, "Oh, you're too totally late. wrong." Too, yeah, too late. late. Wait, there it is from Steve Glazer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he has but a bug I mean, in our studio. I'm not saying he doesn't believe in the Bart strike issue. I believe he does, but it also was a very it was a very shrewd political move in the heat of that assembly race right. to find a way to differentiate yourself among uh, voters that you were going for that particular issue. But right, the original sin is back when uh, Glazer worked for Jobs Pack and after his time with the governor, where uh, two incumbent Members of the Democratic caucus in the assembly were targeted by jobs back. Glazer worked to beat them and the unions blacklisted him. And in some ways, I mean, Anthony, you and I've talked about this before. I mean, in some of this, this feels like, uh, you know, labor will do anything to show that you don't cross them. It's like almost like mafia-esque, you know, because again... Uh-oh, you've linked uh, the, you've linked uh, that the was Marisa Lagos. That was Marisa yeah. Lagos was M. at Lagos. M. Lagos is her Twitter handle. <laughs> no, but just like this narrative that, you know, because we're not talking, I mean, with the exclusion of Baker, about Republican candidates here. We're talking about Democrats on Democrats. And by and large, you know, it's not like Levine is this super you know, right-wing Democrat or something. I mean, it's more about... Shorthand, folks, that's a candidate, that's an assembly member from Marin who who, uh, who benefited when Jobs Pack had targeted the incumbent in that area. An yeah. Democrat, another Democrat who beat an incumbent. Democrat. And Glazer isn't the only political consultant that got blacklisted on this and remains on the, you know, the Cal Labor Fed's black... I just think it's, it's, a, it's fascinating and it, I think it's more... It seems to be less about policy and more about the general sort of coalitions, if we're going to use that word again, that, you know, build power and and want people to be in lockstep with them in a lot of ways. There, there definitely are a few issues that they uh, disagree on. I don't think they are huge. And, and having done some coverage down there, I really didn't find a lot of difference. And that was mainly when Buchanan was still in it. They were on forum, our show, KQED's uh, uh, public affairs show forum um, on Wednesday, uh, Glazer and Bonilla. And you know, a lot of it didn't feel as though they disagreed terribly on several different things. But um, there were a few 
fun exchanges if you like politics and you kind of like the, uh, the the verbal bashing. So this is uh, one excerpt, and I condensed part of it. So transparency here, folks. I didn't make them say something different, but you don't want to hear four minutes. Trust me. Um, but this is a, a little condensed moment where they were fighting over per diem, the payments that legislators get um, on top of their salary to be in Sacramento. Ms. Bonilla takes per diem. Uh, Steve Glazer thought that wasn't great. Here's what they said. I need the per diem. Uh, you know, I live in Concord with my family. We raised our four girls there in our 1,500-square-foot house uh, for the last could 28 years. Could you sublet to Sacramento, please? Um, no. Of course she could. No, I could not. Of course not. she could. Um, course you could. What do you pay in rent a month, Susan? Wow. Well, you know, let's stay on the issue, No, I mean, because you get paid and, $180 a day and per diem. And I think that what's really important here is to see that what the per diem, um, you know, has achieved is representation that's very, very diverse. And, you know, we're not having just wealthy uh, people now serving our legislature like it used to be. It's not all, you know, rich white men. Michael, it's a workaround on the salary issue. There's an independent commission that sets salaries. That's a good thing, right? And so the only way for the politicians to get more money is to work around on this per diem issue. Holidays and weekends when you're not there getting paid? Come on. Susan Bidia? Well, I'm not going to continue to defend the fact that I actually need the financial, um, you know, support in order to do this job. I think that is something good. I think it's good that we are helping uh, everyone who wants to be able to serve, who's willing to serve, um, to be able to afford it. And, you know, I don't live in Arinda. I haven't been a a contractor to very, very wealthy business interests uh, throughout my life. Okay, if you didn't get that part, I don't live in Arenda. I haven't been a contractor to wealthy business interests. Who might she be talking about there? You? Was it you? Oh, no. right, right. Yeah. That would be Steve Glazer, who she somewhat uh, was talking about there. These two, it's, been, it's a nasty race. Um, per diem is not a big issue, but uh, the, the mailers, the accusations, well, the, the money that's come in uh, against Bonilla for Glazer, which has been from a lot of places that often support Republicans. The mailers from the unions in return saying that Glazer is like George W. Bush and Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is a stretch, ladies well, and gentlemen. I know. And and it's funny because, you know, you could argue that their styles are one big difference between them. But even that, I mean, that was one of the nastiest interchanges of that entire, it was an hour. Mm-hmm. And they still sounded very... Mellow. I mean, when you compare it to the tone of the mailers that their surrogates have sent out, it's like it, it's it's just funny to me. So if you look at let's talk just the politics here briefly on this one. If you look at um, the district itself and the way votes have gone so far, good shout out to Paul Mitchell and his friends at Political Data. I think Paul's gotten too many shout outs in the podcast. So that's your last one for a while, uh, Mr. Mitchell. But um, first, if you look at the registration of the district, it's 43 percent Democratic. 29% Republicans, uh, 28% other. Um, and if you look at the ballots that have been cast so far, um, a little more than 60,000 ballots have been cast. Uh, Democrats are outperforming slightly, but Republicans are outperforming a little bit more. And if you're Steve Glazer, you need that. That's you need you need yeah. to turn out Republicans and what? Um a slice of Democrats and enough independents. I mean, that's his path if he wants to win this. Yeah, I mean, he's got a political base in Orinda that includes Democrats. And then, and you know, I mean, folks who have followed some of the, the tracking polls in this race say Glazer is pulling, I mean, he's he's pulling numbers as if he were the Republican. He's pulling, you know, 80% of the Republican ballot. So those those votes that are being counted, at, you know, at least four out of five of them are, are reliably Steve Glazer votes. And that's, um, you know, that's what makes the political 
calculation very tough for Bonilla in this race. It's also interesting, too. I mean, we look at how low turnout is in special elections. This is still going to be low, but relative yeah. to other special elections, this is a pretty, a pretty good high turnout. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's interest. People are talking about it in that part of uh, the Bay Area. And, and that district historically has one of the highest turnouts in, in the state. Mm-hmm. It's an affluent district, you know, Contra Costa County. And I was just thinking, maybe I'll disagree with myself on this issue of how powerful is one lawmaker, because you, we are talking about the Senate, right? Which You can has... never run for office. Marisa Lagos, flip-flopper. flip-flopper. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it is, you know, there are 40 members in the Senate, not 80 like there are in the Assembly, so arguably... Every do, vote every counts more. Every vote counts more, especially with the Democratic caucus and being a mod dem, so fine. Whatever. I'm probably on Cal... Uh, labor feds blacklist now anyway and, and exactly right you'll be getting hate mail <laughs> i'm not gonna get those payments i got every month That's, uh, <laughs> you mean the, you mean the mafia isn't that what you said, that what you said? I said it was mafia-esque oh, the idea of a me. blacklist let's replay the tape uh, just quickly uh keep in mind too this is a district that jerry brown did quite well in um in his re-election bid in in uh 2014 not that he's waded into this race well i was gonna say and but but you know who gets to be the brown democrat in some ways the mailers and the television commercials the most recent ones have also invoked the governor even the bonilla camp has invoked the governor which of course you know given that the governor and steve glazer have this long relationship who knows it's it's ugly in some ways it is a very narrow slice of something but to what you just flipped back on. I, I mean, I think the Senate is a fascinating place right now. The yeah. change in, 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 in philosophy, uh, the rise of the moderates, the challenge of liberals in that House, um, the inner House play always between the Assembly and the Senate, the relationship the governor has with his fellow Democrats and a potential former top advisor to the governor having a vote that could cast yeah. against him in some ways the, the drama is there right and and the potential i'm, I'm not saying this is going to happen all the time but for mod dems to you know line up with republicans and you know if on certain issues go against even and the change the course if they wanted to yeah yeah so so stay tuned we'll see yeah uh, and remember this is an odd number district that means it's up again in 2016 right? oh fun so uh and and, you know, so even if even if Glazer wins, I think there's some questions about how long he might actually hold on to the seat when you take into account what the electorate's going to look like. And, and it, you wonder whether whether labor may try again if they're not successful this time around. Of course, keep in mind that I think, am I right here, that Glazer could serve longer than Bonilla because he yes, would be he under would the new term years. limit. He's yeah. in the new term limits era. So he would, so she, would she would have nine and he would have 13. Because she's under the old rules, so she gets two full terms. Right. She would get nine years, and Glazer would get 13. I'm you, glad you guys understand Well, I was going to say, somebody may think we're way down in the weeds, but don't think someone in Sacramento hasn't figured that oh, out yeah. either in the politics of this and what it means to win on May 19th. Incumbency has real power, even if you try to knock somebody off again later. Incumbency still matters in yeah. these things. I was just referring to how like insanely complicated all the term limit stuff is now that we have people of prior classes and future classes, and there's not like one formula you can look at. You can't Super fun. figure it out, but you can figure out uh, our little side dish every week. So let's do side dish, our little topics in the news. Um, Marisa, have at it. You can be first yeah. here at uh, M Lagos. You can find her on Twitter. Does anybody tweet us anymore about the podcast? I asked a yeah. question this week. I got nothing. I, I got mean... a nice. I got a nice tweet. Okay, from somebody who said they love the podcast Good. recently. Somebody I, we hadn't heard from. Before. Wait till you get those union tweets after also, what you said today. I know. Shoot. <laughs> I also meant to say this like two weeks ago, but I told John we did have 
as far away as Burma or Myanmar, depending on... My sister told me while she was traveling there a few weeks ago with her friend, they were listening to our podcast, which means blowing up they must have been bored or really missed me. But we, hey, we will bring down the tyrannical regime of Myanmar. Shout so, out to Myanmar. So I just want to say, if you go anywhere further than that, let us know and you will get a shout out. Nice. Um, so my side dish this week is this preliminary ruling by a Sacramento Superior Court judge. It has to do with a lawsuit filed by two newspapers over the calendars of indicted former Democratic senators Ron Calderon and Leland Yee, who are both facing separate charges, um, which we won't get into because that's a whole nother podcast. But essentially, these uh, media groups sued for access to the senators' calendars, and the judge, um, in a big sort of rebuke of the legislators' open records law, which is anything but open, I would say, said in this preliminary ruling that they're going to have to hand over the records uh he has to uphold this in a final decision, but I think it, it, it could, you know, really reshape the way Laura is um, interpreted by the courts. And so stay tuned. We might have a little more sunshine on lawmakers or not. And, you know, I, I think they could rewrite it. I try not. I try hard not to have too many of my own little rants uh, sometimes, but I just have to acknowledge on this one. Uh, when you look at what happened in court last week, the attorney for the legislature said um, effectively, there's no value in what's in those calendars. There's nothing here. Just trust us. Well, yeah, and I'm like, well, thank you. Good. I'm glad we can all go home now. I think I actually tweeted out that it was like the Jedi mind trick. You know, these aren't the droids you're looking for. (laughs) But, like, it's like, I mean, you know, that level of, um, you know, let me quite frankly say it, that level of of arrogance, Mm -hmm. you know, is, is what, you know, not only fuels journalists, but I think also is what, you know can be related back to the public's distrust and unhappiness with what they see out of their elected officials sometimes. I mean, yes, there are issues here that need to be resolved, but let's not just go ahead and tell us, you know, and pat us on the head that there's nothing here to see because we need to know what it is. To and they're see talking out of both there. sides of their mouth because at the same time, they're also saying this could really chill the legislative process. I mean, if people had to disclose all their meetings, then, you know, it, it could really prevent business from happening in the Capitol. And I just want to say you can't have it both ways. They can't not matter and then be so important right. that, it, you know, doing away with this law would sort of undermine the very, like, process of democracy. Inconsistency, one yeah. might call that. So, side dish, Anthony York, our Twitter friend, Anthony York 49. Uh, you know, my side dish this week involves the Masonic Fraternal Police Department. A weirdest story of the week. <laughs> Weirdest story of the week, hands down. Read it. Where is the music for cops? We, like, need that, like, you know. Okay, go ahead. Uh, This involves uh, three people who were arrested in Los Angeles for um, allegedly, uh, you know, impersonating police officers. And there is something that they have a website for this Masonic Fraternal Police Department. One of the people who was arrested works in the Department of Justice under in Kamala Harris's office. She was described in the L.A. Times story as an aide to Kamala Harris. Might be, I think he's a civil service employee. Aide, aide may be a little strong. Anyway, still really weird story. Right-hand man of Kamala Harris. <laughs> right, yeah. as, as Rocky her, Chavez her told me. Rocky Chavez told me that. So, uh, no, it's just this bizarre story. These these three individuals, including Chief Henry, who, uh, who called himself the absolute supreme sovereign grandmaster, which, okay— um, yeah, that they, is they, really they, a weak job title, isn't I know, it? I mean, it's right? really small. <laughs> where is, where is like, Overlord? Yeah, where I was going to say, if like, you're going to just 
give yourself a fake title for a fake organization, you might as well be like king of the universe, right? I, it's Well, it's absolute supreme sovereign grandmaster Henry, 32 degrees, 33, I think that's degrees. I'm just reading from the website here. Um, but no, just weird. They were going around, making the rounds, introducing themselves to other law enforcement officials in the area saying, here we are. And it's apparently, from what I can divine from the website, it's some sort of... Divine. Uh, there's there was no, some, no, no pun intended. There's some sort of birthright involved here. Um, Doesn't it go back to the Knights Templar, supposedly? Three thousand years ago. There's a Da Vinci ago. Code moment here. There, there. It really is. Um, but what uh, hasn't been explained story. is what their goal was. Well, right, because there was no. I mean, they were open they were, and transparent. They were they, proactively they had introducing themselves to cops, <laughs> but they weren't like shaking anybody down. Best we, best we can tell thus far. I mean, it's just, just a very, very strange story, and uh, and you know, a, a good side dish for the week. And it made the Capitol Hill media inquiries too because of Harris's Senate campaign. Sure. Does it sure. does it matter to Sarah's Senate campaign or is this just like a blip? I don't think so. I think it's just a weird story. I don't think it's much of a Kamala Harris story. Although, who, I mean, who knows? You know, we'll see how these things go. But that's the only that's reason it makes first... a politics podcast. Yeah, it's the only reason. <laughs> you know, and but it's just a weird, it's weird so thing. So weird. Yeah. Well, I have nothing quite as weird. I'm going back to the, the traditional because really, how do you top yeah. something that might be linked to the Knights Templar? I mean, that's just you know can't do that uh so my might side be, dish john i mean might be is right <laughs> yeah. my side dish uh my twitter handle john myers uh is the launch this week of a of an interesting project that is definitely in its beta form um but i think it's you know it, it back to our transparency issues that we talked about earlier so um former state uh legislator sam blakesley who served in the state senate but also was republican leader of the state assembly um, has uh, is working with a, a, a think tank at Cal Poly uh, down in beautiful San Luis Obispo, one of my favorite towns, um, and launched this week this project called Digital Democracy. I launched it with Gavin Newsom, Lieutenant Governor Newsom, uh, but really it's Blakesley's think tank that has done the work and his students who have done the work. To, give, uh, to set up this tool where you can figure out who did what in hearings at the Capitol? Uh, you can see the video. You can see the transcript. You can search by the name of a lobbyist. You know the name of, you know, Joe Smith lobbyist. I'm going to try to not use real names here. And you type it in, and you can find every time they've testified on a bill and what they said and see a video clip of it and then see their lobbying information. And it's supposedly geared toward giving you a, a better glimpse as to who's doing what at the Capitol. Uh, they're the first ones to admit that it's in beta form, and I mean, it's very it's very good so far from what I've seen, but it's also very limited. I think this is an enormous amount of data that they would have to cull through. I mean, they've been using voice recognition stuff and facial recognition stuff so that they can figure out who is this lobbyist or who is this legislator or who is this person. Um, I mention it because I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting quest. I think it's got a lot of work done on it, but... You know, given I've been working on a transparency project for the last uh, few months, I think, you know, transparency is interesting. We don't have as much of it as I think some people think we do sometimes yeah. in, in state government. And so. I think the, the technology they're using just shows how how many more openings there are for this sort of transparency because of, you know, the fact that a lot of these hearings are videotaped and the fact that there is potentially, you know, I mean, I don't think they're using like facial recognition software, but like that could be a tool eventually on all of this. Um, I think, you know, again, yeah, as a member of the fourth estate, I think it's really a cool idea. I'm interested to see how, as it sort of 
develops, easy it is to use and widely used it is. Because I think one of the big problems right now that we have with our, um, you know, campaign finance and, and lobbying disclosure and all of that stuff is that the data is there, but you practically need to be like a Ph.D., to, to, to actually sort through it and have a lot of time, right? So people who, you know, say we don't need more laws or we don't need more disclosures say, well, we have sunshine on all of these things. And that's true to an extent, but it's so difficult to get to <laughs> to the sunshine that I think, you know, whether this can be a tool that sort of your average person could use on an issue they're interested in will, will be um, interesting to watch. Yeah, you know the sun is out if you've got four layers of uh, clothing over it. But I mean, but you can't really feel it or see it. So I think that's kind of the goal here. So let's uh, um, third topic quickly. I mean, because we're going to have a lot of time on the podcast next week to talk about uh, the state budget, uh, given the governor's uh, revised budget will be unveiled next week. But I figured we might just have a quick scene setter here and just like, what are we looking for out of this? What is it that if you're a podcast junkie, what do we think you want to keep an eye open for as the news gets rolled out? And and it's hard to not say that um, the state's tax revenue situation is top of the line there, um, because we certainly have indications that revenues are better than anyone expected again. But I mean, what it was the what's the top line here that people should be looking for? Uh, I don't know about top line. I mean, I had all right. I, then I had the hell with that. What I, about well, I had a couple line? of quirky because I, I mean, I, I do think the revenue picture yeah. is the top line, and frankly, whether there's any money for anything other than schools, I, that's sort of what we're looking for. And right. And and as a a, a bit of a, a you know connected to that is for me I'm I'm kind of interested to see how uh, this budget works with Prop Two a yet another funding guarantee you know in the mix for the first time between the Prop ninety eight guarantee and all the other obligations and and sort of the prescriptive uh, policy that we have in our constitution about where b- money goes. Um, what a multi-billion-dollar windfall looks like, and and whether any of it, um, you know, escapes sort of the uh, the the Prop ninety-eight, Prop two uh, vortex there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that if there is extra money where the governor earmarks it, is where the real fights will be set up. And um, you know, I was I was thinking yesterday as I listened to last week's podcast, so that I would be fully prepared for today. Um, what are you going to think when you go back and listen to that mafia line? Oh, over God, you guys are making me nervous now. Jeez, be nice, guys. Scott Day wants to talk to you, by the way. Oh, God. Anyway, you were um, I was just thinking how, you know, when we had all these huge dips in revenue, there was all this discussion about boom and bust and how we, you know, spend money hand over fist when we're booming. And it just struck me that we're you know, feels like we're in that boom again. And, and it, it, Oh heck yeah, we are, you know, (laughs) and it's just going to be, I think, you know, again, this, this tension between especially more liberal Democrats in the legislature and the governor who has really focused on debt and other issues, um, that, you know, that's, that's really going to be the tension that we're going to see. Yeah. And I guess I'm looking for something that's a synthesis of what both of you have said. I mean, I, I certainly think that the revenue numbers and the revenue numbers look like really strong. I mean, there is uh, there is some chatter around the Capitol that whereas we thought we were looking at a four billion dollar above projections number could be a six, seven billion. I don't know above projections, because keep in mind here, folks, you know, a lot of what we've talked about, and what you've heard in the news so far has been April tax returns. 
But the governor's revised budget is going to not only give you what it thinks April look like, but what June will look like. And June has become right. a very big month in tax collections in California after we've kind of shifted the way we, we calculate revenues and people who pay uh, quarterly and those kind of things. So June is going to be a really important number. But that interaction with 98 and 2, what will go into Prop 98, what will Prop 2 require, even though Prop 2 really begins in earnest in the new fiscal year, this is kind of the transition moment right. to that. But then to your point, Marisa, about the fight, what is the wish list for Democrats in the legislature? What number, what number above the 98 um, uh, minimum that has to go there or do they think they're going to get? I mean, Shirley Weber, the chair of the Assembly Budget Committee, said in a background briefing with reporters the other day that she has heard it. There is 98 envy out there, of that course. like 98 gets the money and what about everything else? But we've seen some big price tags, even this week. We saw a price tag of as much as $750 million a year for Senator Ricardo Lara's plan to put undocumented immigrants into the Medi-Cal program. And that, was, that bill was shelved, right? It was shelved, but it's in it's in the world of suspense, which we know doesn't mean Take a down. whole lot quite yet. Uh, the Democrats in the Assembly um, invoked in that same budget briefing an earned income tax credit, a state version of that, right. which the LAO has said could cost as much as $450 million. Um, there's UC and CSU funding. There's Speaker Atkins transportation funding right. idea. Affordable and affordable housing. housing. There are so many things here. And so to me, it's the revenue and then not necessarily the day that the governor puts the budget out, but what do his uh, Democratic counterparts upstairs in the Capitol how do they prioritize that wish list that they have to go to him and sell? To and, him? And, and oh, I, and I was just going to say, I mean, it's another moment to sort of, for me, I think, to reflect on the divergence between uh, uh, the budget and the economy. What we're talking about. I mean, look, our budget revenues are soaring. There are people in the state. We're more dependent on you know the swings of the top one percent of income earners. More dependent on them than ever. They are doing well. That's why our budgets are booming, why we have multi-billion dollars in revenues. And yet there was a, you know, a new study out from the University of California this week that shows low-wage workers are, are on the rise, are now uh, you know, growing to a full third of our workforce, are making less than $13 an hour. Uh, and that real wages uh, for the bottom 60% of workers are, um, are falling. You know? And so uh, it's, I think it's important when we talk about the budget to realize that Sometimes the top line budget numbers can mask some other underlying uh, problems with our economy. And I think there's a real debate over what role government plays in, in trying to fix that. And, and that's sort of, you know, the discussion about the social services we're having. But outside of government, you know, it's, I think it's important to remember there are a lot of people uh, that are not participating in this historic boom that, that you're talking about. Right? Absolutely. And I think politically what, how we will see that play out is whether or not the you know the two houses and the leadership there kind of line up together on their priorities or not um, because we've seen the the speakers stake out different territory you mentioned transportation affordable housing I think Kevin DeLeon the pro tem of the Senate has talked more about child care and some of these more like social you know sort of poverty issues poverty immigration yeah and, other things. and I mean I think on balance on paper they they all pretty much agree but. But you got to choose. You can't have everything. And so I think that um, in in down years, there was, to some extent, you know, some sort of linking of arms and trying to protect as much as they could in, in the legislature. I think when you see these types of booms, it, it can create 
more schisms um, with between Democrats. So. And you've got and the schism again with the governor. I mean, that's been an ongoing issue about what kinds of priorities does the Democratic governor have vis-a-vis the Democratic legislature. And you got to sell him at some yeah. point. So we'll see what the governor and, rolls out next week. Yeah. yeah. And I was just going to say one more thing is like even within, you know, I think it depends on where you come from, because if you come from an area like L.A. or San Francisco where housing prices are super high, you might be more concerned about that. But if you come from the Central Valley where we see a lot of, you know, low wage workers, you know, I mean, right. there's just a lot of different sort of caveats to where Democrats kind of stake out their positions. Caveats galore. Fun. And with that, caveat away. Hopefully I'll still be here next week. We will follow these developments uh, all week long. Uh, that's Marisa Lagos from KQED, Anthony York from the Grizzly Bear Project, and I'm John Myers from KQED. Thanks, as always, for listening to this California Politics Podcast.